the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to The Advocate with your host, Nick Phillips. And now, here's your host, Nick Phillips. Good evening, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another edition of The Advocate. Uh, We're still talking about the coronavirus, COVID-19, and what's going on in the state of Ohio. And with us tonight, as always, we have State Representative Dave Greenspan. Dave, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. Appreciate being on, as always. Uh, what is going on with uh, COVID-19 now from a state's point of view? Um, it seems we're in some type of a, a stable situation. Is, is it what it seems or how are we doing? Yeah, I would say that's a, that's a fair assessment as we stand today um, with on the public health side. You know, we've seen a number of our, our numbers are relatively relatively flat, if not in some instances in the last few days have been have been showing some decline, which is good. You know, I believe yesterday or I believe on, on you know, we're seeing numbers that, that are declining, which which is good. Um, you know, we t- we've talked in the past about some actions that, that the governor, the administration have taken early on. They took early on in March uh, ahead of the rest of the country in order to help uh, Ohio mitigate some of its possible outbreak and spread. And we are we are um, back. Uh, the economy is largely open. There are restrictions in place, but we are open, I would argue, more than most any other state in the country. And our numbers are flat, if not declining. Unfortunately, we're seeing increased cases, I believe, in in, in 14 other states, including Texas and Florida, um, which which is concerning. You know, they opened up around the same time we did. Uh, their climates are warmer than ours, so that you know, that that discussion point about uh, warmer temperatures help reduce the spread. Uh, they're seeing some some increases. They opened uh, around, actually they opened in some instances after us. And um, we're going to continue to monitor that. But here in Ohio, uh, and when I talk about cases, uh, let me just be clear: I'm not. We're all testing more. Um, I'm not talking about confirmed cases. I'm talking about hospitalizations, intensive care, and unfortunately, uh, those who pass away from this virus in those states. We're seeing increases. Ohio isn't seeing that, and we're opening up more and more uh, as we continue to speak. Um, you know, Cedar Point and, and the other large, large, you know, amusement parks and, and movie theaters with certain restrictions are now opening. Uh, the rest of our economy largely has been open uh, since mid, since mid, mid-May. So we've been open for a month. Um, a lot of folks were anticipating an increase in spread as we opened up the economy. And fortunately in Ohio, uh, we've not seen it. I think it's, it's largely due to the residents of the state being vigilant, listening to the restrictions and and the controls that were put in place in order to to prevent the spread. Um, and I believe the governors we've talked in the past did some things early on that helped us um, uh, to, to get to the point where where we are today. Uh, you know, it's it's it, it's too early for us to take a victory lap. I don't think we should as it relates to the public health side of it. We need to be vigilant because we know that this is out there and it's still it's still among us. But we now know more than we did back in we in Ohio and we in the nation and the world know more about this today than we did say back in February March, 
and uh, we recognize who the vulnerable populations are and who are less likely to be impacted by this and uh, are operating more effectively uh, to to return to as much of a normal, traditional summertime environment, but be mindful of, of what's out there. Yeah, it seems like uh, we, as we are stable with regard to the conditions and how many people are coming up with COVID-19, there's a thing I've heard called quarantine exhaustion, where right. people are getting tired of social distancing. They love the summer. They are waiting to get out into all of these uh, things that have been open. But we still have to be cautionary about that. And uh, how do we fight that? Is that something that the state is aware of, the COVID or the quarantine exhaustion issues? Yeah, and that's a great point. And, and, you know, early on I was raising, early on being March, I was raising some of the concerns regarding the mental health of our population. You know, you know, there, there's, you know, there's an early acceptance for what's going on. There's a, 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 a complacency and then you get into the frustration part of it. And, and now you're right. You know, we, we're in, in the, in the, in the, a lot of us are feeling the frustration. My, my youngest son now was, we were able to, to cobble together a number of camps and opportunities for him that three weeks ago weren't available. It's not the traditional summer. Um, you know, I think we'll feel more like that when professional sports and concerts start ramping up, but most everything else is available to us in some form or another. But the issue comes down to, although these activities and events may be open, my wife and I went out, we took our family out to dinner Friday night as an example, and the restaurant was largely full, you know, to, to its, you know, to its restrictive capacity. Uh, we're going to start to see more and more people become more comfortable. Um, those who are not vulnerable, I would argue, if you're health compromised or, or a senior, um, take extra precaution. But those that are, that are in the category where the virus has proven not to be as impactful, cautiously go out and do as much as you can and, and take advantage of the opportunities that are before us. I agree. We uh, went out recently to a, a Mexican restaurant out at Crocker Park. That the walls were made up of like garage doors that were all open. It was a warm day, warm night. Mm-hmm. Breezes were blowing through. The tables were separated, and the staff was wearing. They were all wearing masks. And it just gave us a very confident feeling that this is probably a good place to go and eat. And we didn't, a lot of people there, but they were all separated. And it, it looked like it would be very, very difficult for the biologic transfer of the COVID-19. So in any event, we, we have to continue to live and uh, make best do with what's going on with the virus and minimize those risks whenever possible. But that leaves us with the question when I talk about going out to a restaurant coming out economically, how is the economy looking from the state perspective? How are we doing? Yeah, so, so revenues, obviously, as you can imagine, from the state's perspective are down dramatically. Uh, you know, two primary funding sources, revenue streams for the state is income tax or income tax and sales tax. And obviously we know that both, you know, in, in, in starting late March, but more so April, May, and now June, we're seeing numbers come back a little, you know, more, but not, to, not to pre COVID levels. Um, you know, we took a big hit and, um, the governor between strong revenue at the beginning of the year. Now our fiscal year ends June 30th and the new one starts July 1st. So let's talk about, about the, the current fiscal year. We had a strong first half of the year and the governor was able to manage and administer, um, cost saving measures on the, on the outflow side. But we had, we had, we had about a $775 million 
net cash flow deficit that the governor was able to address, mm-hmm. uh, lar- largely through unilateral cuts that he was able to make, not needing the legislature's approval, mm-hmm. um, because these are funds that have been appropriated. And remember, mm-hmm. the governor asked the legislature for the appropriation. The legislature mm-hmm. grants the appropriation, but we can't compel the governor to spend. So he has been with within his rights to to do the the, the adjustments he's done. So we're we were looking at this year just under a billion dollars. Uh, next year, which starts July first, just in a few weeks, the projections are somewhere between early early projections are uh, between two and three billion. And depending on how in, in revenue shortfall um, on a seventy billion dollar approved budget, so that's pretty dramatic. And so the governor uh, is going to be, you know, working to to mitigate the the exposure and what that will look like to our the delivery of our services. And the legislature, I'm sure, we will provide input as we have to approve appropriations and reappropriations of fund. So we're looking at a better pretty next year's, you know, a two to three billion dollar uh, projected deficit right now. Uh, what we are seeing though, and we're seeing this nationally, is we're seeing people going back to work. We're, we're seeing uh, not as quickly as we would like. You know, we were at a 4% unemployment rate in the state. Uh, projections now are we're, we're somewhere in the low 20s. We got up to the low 20s. Um, but we're now seeing, just as the federal government is seeing, folks going back to work, coming off the unemployment um, unemployment rolls, and engaging back in the economy. Um, we will probably get down to around 10%. My, my expectation is pretty quickly. Um, however, getting from 10 to four again, it took us 10 years to do that last time. And I'm not, that's not my projection. It'll take us 10 years, but we do know there are a number of businesses that, that aren't reopening period. There are a number of jobs that will not be available, um, that were available say in February. Um, but, but I know that when I made the recommendation to the administration, I made the recommendation within our, within our, our house and have talked to jobs, Ohio, that we need to take advantage of the opportunity we have. Uh, with where we are geographically and the resources we have between power and water to go after manufacturing jobs and and bring back onshore, especially in the medical and pharmaceutical world, a lot of those products that we found ourselves woefully dependent upon other nations in order to provide our our public health and and I would even argue um, our our own public welfare um, and public defense and issues and, and bring those businesses back to Ohio. And we we don't, I believe, fully understand uh, as a, as a general population how important it is that we have Lake Erie as a resource in manufacturing. Um, a lot of a lot of states um, who compete for manufacturing jobs and a lot of manufacturing processes require on water, and we have an abundance of water, which which gives us that advantage that other states don't have. And so we need to take advantage of, of our resources. We need to take advantage of our, 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 our people. We've got very hardworking um, people who want to do a good job, who are cross-trainable, who can learn new skills. And we need to give them the opportunity in order to, to transform from whatever jobs they're working in before, if they're no longer available, into what I would argue new Ohio economy jobs. We're talking to State Representative David Greenspan about the state of the economy here in the state of Ohio in the COVID-19 era. We're going to take a short break. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on The Advocate. We'll be back after these words. Don't go away.
Welcome back, Cleveland. Nick Phillips with you with another segment of The Advocate. And tonight we're talking to State Representative Dave Greenspan concerning what's happening in the state of Ohio, and especially the Ohio legislature and the Ohio government uh, during this COVID pandemic. Uh, Dave, thank you again for joining us, as always. Absolutely. Thank you. Appreciate being on. Uh, well, love hearing what's going on here in the uh, state of Ohio, especially from the Columbus perspective. Uh, as we were talking about the uh, economic issues, uh, are, is there any contemplation of meeting the shortfall with changing the tax structure, i.e. raising taxes? We, we've had no discussion about that um, that I'm aware of. Um, so that, that as, as far as I know, has not been discussed. We do have about... $2.7 billion in the rainy day fund, uh, which I do believe the governor, early indications are that he, he will be utilizing some of that uh, in addition to, you know, cost-cutting measures. Uh, you know, the last thing any of us want to do is raise taxes. And, um, you know, although earlier this General Assembly, we did raise the motor fuel tax, which hadn't been adjusted in nearly 16 years. Um, but other than that, and those funds directly go to the roads. We've talked about that in the past. The, you know, the legislature is, is generally adverse to, to raising taxes. And if you want to stimulate the economy, raising taxes is not, uh, is not the most advantageous way to go about to stimulate and grow the economy. Um, so we need uh, to look. Yeah. I was going to ask, are there any appropriations that can safely be postponed until we get out of this pandemic economy? Well, unfortunately, yes. The answer to that is yes. Unfortunately, uh, one of the one of the areas that I believe in the General Assembly every two years uh, takes into account an opportunity to provide to pass a capital budget, and um, we were just about ready to start to address the the capital budget, which we issued debt in order to provide the funding for that when the COVID uh, hit. So the capital appropriations budget um, will be one of those areas that I I don't yet know what. Our plan is for that, but I know that it's it's been placed on hold. Uh, you know, as far as other areas of concern, you remember about 90% of our budget uh, goes towards education, incarceration, and Medicaid. Uh, those are tough areas to provide uh, cuts. I know that the governor in the in the current fiscal year provided a cut or offered a cut of $300 million to K through 12. And what I can say is to that. Um, there were over 70 districts in the state and, and four of my five districts were negatively impacted by this. Saw budget cuts within that $300 million. Uh, I'll give you a, a, an example. Rocky River received a 55% budget cut, pre-CARES Act. There was some federal money that came back in, but pre-CARES Act cut a 55%. Westlake was 41%. Four of my five districts were, were negatively impacted. Senator Dolan uh, worked very diligently, who's, who's my state senator, worked very, very diligently um, on creating a formula, and I was prepared to introduce that in the House. Uh, and then we, we tabled, tabled it for a short period of time, and the senator was able to have it included into a Senate bill. And what we basically came up with and what he came up with, and I was able to, to work in getting it passed through the House, was a provision that provided that no district in the state shall receive greater than a 6% cut in its funding. And so we were able to, the governor was able to address the issue. The House came back, uh, you know, the governor cut 
in his cuts was about $300 million. This provision that Senator Dolan introduced that I was able to, to help navigate through the House was about $24 million, which basically aligned every district not to lose more than 6%. So we just passed that this past week. Um, that was an important piece of legislation as we're dealing with how to successfully manage and make the proper priority decision calls as it relates to funding. Um, you know, it's hard, you know, incarceration it is one where, where you know, the governor was looking hard to look at ways to release those prisoners who are at the end of their nonviolent sentence with, I believe, six months or less or 90 days or less to help expedite their their early release um, with certain conditions. So it's not just a, across the board release, which should help relieve, alleviate some of that. And Medicaid, you know, is one of those programs that as unemployment increases, we have more people that are dependent upon the system. That's tough, and I'm not aware of, of significant Medicaid cuts or even discussions being had around that. So that leaves the remaining 10% of, of the budget, which is about $6 billion, which which is probably more where a lot of these cuts um, may come. And that's that's a large a large number if you're looking at 2 to $3 billion. Not saying all of it's going to come out of the out of that $6 billion, but um, you know, a, a portion of it will. And we need to, this comes down to, to values and, and, and decisions as to priorities. And we will sit down hard starting, you know, uh, late this summer and discussing those issues. With the, uh, going back to education for a bit with regard mm-hmm. to the cuts there, uh, because of the school closings that have occurred, uh, have there been any savings recognized by the different uh, school districts in the state of Ohio because they closed early? Yeah, not particularly because because a lot of the a lot of the uh, the school the school budget numbers and the revenue that comes in or or, or the, the the revenue I'm sorry the numbers that come in the costs are are um, are payroll related and a lot of the the teacher contracts still require compensation to be paid out so we don't really see a a, a reduction in cost there just because the facilities themselves are were closed there there are some savings obviously we can't. We can't dismiss that, but a large portion of school budgets are made up of compensation, and, and those are still being paid out, uh, you know, to to the uh, to the to the teachers. Now, administration and faculty, uh, administration and staff, those are different. You know, the non-union, non-bargaining unit folks, um, and we've seen some layoffs and, and issues there as well, but um, not, nothing significant in 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 the world of education at the district level. I would say other than the cuts that would be mandated by the state budget cuts, but as far as as far as savings because the schools are not in play or not open now, I don't believe that that's a, a realistic expectation. Real, real quick comment. We're quickly running out of time, but when we talk about layoffs, we talk about unemployment benefits. How are we doing statewide with regard to unemployment and funding of the benefits? Yeah, yeah. The the that's a great great question. So the unemployment system that the state was working with uh, and is still working with uh, is acknowledged to be woefully inadequate. You know, this administration inherited a, a system that in the, in a few years ago was identified for a, an appropriation of nearly $90 million to upgrade, modernize it. Um, and those processes were starting to take place early in this, in governor DeWine's administration. However, this hit at an inopportune time period in life, but, as it related to the implementation of the new software package, so um, the system is, is kind of being hot patched. It's being it's being repaired, you know, and, and modernized 
on the fly as we're dealing with this. You know, the system's designed to handle about three to 400,000 cases a year, not 1.2 million in four to six weeks. And so the system's had challenges. Um, plus, we've had guidance come out of Washington, statements made coming out of Washington about programs, the PUA program, the 1099 folks as an example. Um, statements were made in early April. Guidance wasn't given till late April, and then it would take some time to enhance the software to capture um, the requirements for the PUA program. And so we started paying out PUA payments in May, May 15th, but the program was announced early April. So there was there were some there was some uh, anxiety, rightly so, with an ex- with a program that was announced in April but not implemented till mid May. Um, but what I can say, as far as our district is concerned, one of my um, uh, personnel in my office, uh, her sole responsibility was to deal with unemployment and PUA claims, and we are, as a district, far ahead of of of, uh, of this issue. And our number of open cases is very minimal, and so much so that that um, that, that Lauren in my office has been reassigned to other representatives' offices to help them bring their unemployment uh, constituent issues uh, to close. So we, we, we were ahead of it in, in our office, and, and so much so that our staff has been reassigned to help other members uh, as well as, as finalizing or working with issues within our own district. Well, it sounds like we're, we're keeping, like you used the term, hot patch. It sounds like you're repairing a road. But you extend the life of the road, and we're doing the same kind of theory here, hot patching our our entire system to get us through this pandemic period. Uh, and uh, with that, we, we just have a, a few moments. So I'd like to thank State Representative Dave Greenspan for joining us uh, tonight, as always. And uh, we'll look to see next month whether or not there's going to be any legislation that's in the mill that is going to be trying to resolve some of the additional problems we might be having here in the state of Ohio. But right now... Uh, looks like we're doing the best we can and uh, probably acting as one of the better states in the country. Uh, I would David, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Very thank you. Have, 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 a great, have a great month. Thank you so much. That was State Representative Dave Greenspan joining us. He'll be back next month to give us another update on what's going on here in the state of Ohio. We're going to take a short break. You're listening to Nick Phillips on The Advocate. We'll be right back after these words. Actually, make Phillips with you with another segment of the Advocate. Uh, in the next two segments, we're going to talk about the issues that are stealing the headlines right now, and how do these fit into a historical concept? And uh, what better way to do that than talk to uh, a historian? And with us, we have Dr. David Stebbin from the Ohio State University, professor of history. Dr. Stebbin, thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting. My, my pleasure. Um, before we start talking about the current uh, things going on and how that might play out in history in the future, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. You're at Ohio State, and uh, you have that's a right. PhD in history. Tell us. That's, that's right. I teach modern American history at Ohio State, uh, mostly political history in the history department and American legal history in the law school. Huh. Well, those are certainly relevant because this seems to be the most unusual year. 
and I was thinking if we could project ourselves 30 years ahead so that we were looking back uh, to the year 2020, which is going to be a landmark year in history books, I'm sure, uh, where we have COVID-19, we have George Floyd, we have the Trump administration and its influence on the role of the United States on the international stage, and then we have the economy with the roller coaster stock market and Boeing's thousands of aircraft grounded. You, you have a lot to uh, chew on right now as, as a historian. What, how, how does this fit into what we've been doing over the last decade? Well, I think for most people, the thing that is most jarring is this sudden switch from a high employment economy for most people to one where we have a level of unemployment that we haven't seen since the Great Depression. And that is very disorienting and has all sorts of consequences. Uh, and it's not clear how long we'll be in this situation. And and I, the book I, I've been working on deals with, starts with the Depression era and 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 the the very high unemployment of that era was transformative. It changed people's lives short term and long term. And the really interesting question about 2020 and how we'll see it 30 years from now is 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 it similar in the sense that it began not just a brief period of high unemployment but a sort of longer term period. Uh, and no one knows yet the answer to that question. And one can hope that that will not be the case. But the uh, the nature of the pandemic uh, is such that uh, it's hard to fight the pandemic without driving up joblessness. Yeah, we see that happening. We see that in the news every day. It, it is sort of a hand-in-hand situation that uh, even looking at the stock market, regardless of what's happening with the employment or unemployment, when we hear something in the news that's positive, about a vaccine or the COVID-19 receding or anything positive, the stock market reacts instantly. Uh, and then also as states are opening up their economies and people are going back to work, everybody is on the edge of their seat waiting to see what is the COVID-19 effect going to be of opening up. And here in Ohio, at least, it seems that we've been doing things right. Uh, we're opening up and we're not seeing these huge spikes, like they're seeing in other states, like Arizona and California. Uh, we have this linkage between the virus and the economy. Uh, how, how strong is that? It's very, very strong. It also relates to social protests and unrest. In other words, uh, if people are suffering economically, those who have the least, in terms of savings and resources, uh, are prompted to protest in various ways, and, and the 30s were like that. There was a lot of social protest that grew out of sudden, lasting mass unemployment, uh, and it, it occasionally led to sort of urban disturbances and riots uh, that were big, but usually smaller. Uh, but the point is, one, you had people who were angry uh, and who were suffering because they didn't have enough to eat and so on, but also because they were jobless, they had time on their hands. They didn't have to be at work or what have you, which made social protest mm. in a way more common. And all of that has now returned. 
right? In Same other words, yeah, and and the uh, even the nature of the government's response. So when the Great Depression arrived and social protests mounted, uh, it put pressure on the police, especially in Washington D.C. And there was a big protest in Washington in 1932 during the last full year of Herbert Hoover's presidency, and it got out of control. And the uh, the president ultimately endorsed a very heavy-handed move by deploying the military and so on to drive out the protesters. And that was sort of the end of his presidential popularity, to the extent he had any left, President Hoover. Uh, after that, his standing in the polls collapsed, and then he lost uh, several months later to the Democratic challenger. And I don't know that that will happen in the fall. We'll, we'll see. But the point is, if you have suddenly mass unemployment and then you have social protests, how to deal with that uh, becomes a very tricky thing for the authorities. And if you're too heavy handed, that turns off all kinds of people. If you don't have any response at all, that, that makes people nervous as well. And so all of a sudden, governments urban, you know, city government, state governments, the federal government, trying to navigate that question also uh, with mixed results. Now, the, the linkage now between COVID and the economy, we see that the population was ripe for a, this big reaction with regard to George uh, Floyd. And right. uh, we, we talk about the, all these ingredients you mentioned massive unemployment, we have the anxiety and emotion that has been driven up because of the COVID-19. And and now we have, I think the stage is set for really grand changes in our society. Just like you mentioned the depression of 1929, when that started through the 30s, we, we can remember how those people from that generation had an extreme distrust in banks. There's all kinds of stories of people hoarding money in the walls of their house uh, and those kinds of things. What, what kind of transformative changes do you think we might be seeing or expecting uh, coming up here in, say, like the next year? Well, the one major transformation we've had so far is in the federal government's willingness to spend large sums of money, uh, expanding greatly the size of the federal budget deficit to try to provide relief to various kinds of people. And that happened during the Great Depression. Uh, when, before the Depression hit, the, the government was running, the federal government was running a surplus. They were trying to pay off the national debt uh, with the idea that if you did that, the economy would be better off. And all of a sudden, when the Depression came along, uh, fairly quickly, the majorities in Congress, majorities of voters, wanted help, regardless of what that meant for adding to the federal government's debt. And something similar has now returned, $3 trillion in spending that no one expected to be there. And the concern about preventing social unrest and people losing everything to foreclosure and bankruptcy and so on has, has worked that change. And you're very right. In other words, the Great Depression came along and all of a sudden things changed. What was politically possible changed. And all of a sudden that's happening now in the United States. 
And how far it goes, it's hard to say. But I do think that the, the general direction is to improve economic security, especially for people who are, have something but not very much. And the, we have a safety net that we did not have in the 1930s, but it has holes in it. It's never been truly comprehensive. So I suspect there'll be more and more effort to sort of protect people against sudden, lasting job loss. And there's a health insurance version of this where you find a way to help people keep their health insurance even if they're unemployed. There's a sort of student loan problem that there wasn't in the 30s. Right? You know, there may be pressure to postpone repayment of student loans mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. until well, the job, job rate take, goes down. We're going to take a short break now. We're talking to Dr. David Seven from Ohio State University, a professor in history, talking about the transformation that this country may be facing based on all the things we're dealing with this time, everything from COVID to uh, the economy. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back with Dr. Seven. Don't go away. You're listening to Nick Phillips here on WHK. We'll be right back. Welcome back, Cleveland. Phillips with you for our final segment of the Advocate for tonight. We're talking to Dr. David Stevin. We're actually trying to recognize the things that are going on here with COVID-19 with regard to the George, George Floyd and the uh, Black Lives Matter movement, the uh, United States and where it's heading on the international stage and the economy. And we're asking a lot for Dr. Stevin and to sort of put this all together and make sense out of it for us. Again, Dr. Stevin, thank you for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you. It's it's great looking at things from a historian's point of view. And during the break, we were were just talking about the fact that all of these things happening and then being a student of history professionally for all these years and looking at how things occurred do you see any trends that uh, conjoining all of these things I just mentioned might uh, have us look at the world differently next year at this time? Well, I do think one of the big questions is to what extent uh, opening up, resuming normal economic life encourages a revival or an increase in uh, COVID-19. Uh, if that happens, then, of course, there'll be pressure on the government to, to shut down things again. And if that happens, then the sort of economic problems will likely persist. And no one really knows, and uh, one can hope for the best, but it's hard to be sure. And what complicates this uh, is that, of course, confidence is very important in a market system, and so you don't want to discourage people, consumers, business owners, and so on. So there's a big challenge for the people who present the you know, business and economic news uh, to do it accurately, but not to do it in a way that is self-fulfilling. If they, were, if they print stories that are discouraging and so on about unemployment or whatever, then they could produce the result they're trying to avoid. And that was true in the Great Depression. In other words, the business pages in the newspapers tended to err on the side of optimism because they didn't want to make a bad situation worse. 
Uh, and so and even the unemployment statistics of that era were often not fully accurate because the way we count the unemployed in America is to count the number of people who are actively seeking work. And the higher the unemployment rate goes, the more discouraged people become, and they stop looking. But if they stop looking, they're no longer counted as unemployed, even though that's what they are. And so there's been a real challenge to keep up with accurate reporting on unemployment. Uh, and so I think, you know, the hope is that this is a relatively brief taste of an earlier era that goes away. Uh, and no one really knows, but we should know in a year. And by the way, that was also true at the start of the Great Depression. In other words, the stock market recovered after the big crash because it wasn't clear that this was a long-term thing. And so the Great Depression really arrived at the end of 1930, about a year after the stock market crash, uh, when it became clear that this was going to be a long-term thing. And as for today, we just don't know yet. Well, that's what I was wondering. Um, you know, we've heard, I don't know if I have the, uh, the, the quote correct, but it's something about uh, for, for those who ignore history are doomed to repeat it. Uh, there's similarities here with regard to the extremes of the Depression and the crash of 29 and the extremes we're experiencing now. And uh, are there any any lessons we've learned from your study of, of the Depression era through the 1960 period to what maybe segment of all of these problems we're facing now is trending, in your opinion, in the wrong direction that we should make corrections now that we're not doing? That's not asking a lot. Because no, well, it, and I'm not in Congress or the state legislature. Uh, I do think that the, one of the great things to come out of the bad experience of the Great Depression was more emphasis on protecting the income and economic security of the broad middle class, and they matter a lot in the American economy because so much of it, something like 70% of the economy is driven by consumers. And if people are fearful uh, of their economic future, even if they have money, they won't spend it. And one of the most uh, characteristic things in the early years of the 30s was people would not buy things even if they could afford to do so, because they were so frightened, and that simply made a bad problem worse. And so to the extent the Congress and the states and so on can help people feel that they're going to be able to avoid being wiped out if you're a small business person, it's one thing to see your business income go down because you have fewer customers because of the pandemic. It's quite something else if, it, if you suffer so much loss of income that you lose your business. In other words, you can't pay the mortgage on the property if you, that you bought to have a business or the debts you owe to suppliers or what have you. Because once people are wiped out, they're in far worse shape than, than and it's much harder to escape from that situation. Uh, the challenge for government, I think, is to, is to prevent that to prevent individuals and businesses from basically going broke so that they can't bounce back as the economy improves. Do you see any signs that uh, looking at 
this as a temporary situation. I think a lot of people feel that with the COVID-19, until a virus is ready, which everybody's working hard to get, that we push some kind of gigantic pause button. That everything is paused. The airplanes are parked. The businesses, the small businesses are, are shut down temporarily. And then there'll be a, a push of the button again, and everything will spring back to life and rapidly start going back to where it was. Uh, how much of a pipe dream is that? And since this is a novel situation for our current generation, uh, is is there any novel approach to forgiving large quantities of debt or, or debt, for example? We're talking about the small business that stopped uh, operating because of COVID-19, and they're not paying their bills. If we go upstream and we look at the landlords that should forgive back due rent from the tenants, and then the landlords who owe debt service on their buildings, they should be forgiven, forgiven some kind of amnesty on making their mortgage payments. And then the institutions that have to have, you know, we can just keep going back upstream. Uh, is, is there any novel theories that might be able to save us from a long-term economic depression? Well, one one very important question is how long is the pause? And as I mentioned before, one possibility is that we pause and then the, the virus gets worse again, so then we have to pause again. And if that happens too much, then there are individuals who have relatively little in the way of savings and a lot of debt, and they will go broke. And then there are the businesses that depend on consumers. And if the pause goes on too long, or the pause and then modest revival followed by a pause again, if that pattern goes on too long, they simply don't have business models that can generate enough income to keep them in business. Uh, and at that point, the government could do something like what it did in the 30s. It set up its own sort of bank uh, and literally lent money at very low rates of interest uh, and good and attractive terms to help bail out the business community. And uh, President Hoover actually came up with this idea, but he never was willing to fund it enough to make a difference. But under President Roosevelt, this uh, uh, economic entity run by the federal government, which was basically the world's biggest bank, lent all kinds of money to businesses that kept them afloat uh, during the 30s. So that, and that might be something that the current Congress would be interested in, in doing, uh, because there are, you know, there's Republican control in the Senate and helping the business community would be something that, that they tend to be oriented toward doing. But there's also the individual, you know, household. And if they go broke and they have their car repossessed and so on, or they lose their home through foreclosure, and they, too much of that also creates this huge macroeconomic problem where people don't have money to spend and buy things and drive the economy forward. So, so I think Congress and the states are going to have to pay attention not just to the business folks, but also to individual households mm -hmm. and families and so I on. I agree. So it's a big job. I, I, I agree. I agree. Well, it's too big of a job. We're out of time. We're, we're going to have uh, Dr. Stephen Hunt again in July talk about his book uh, about the U.S. economy back in 1929, 1960, that time frame. We're going to inevitably be talking about what's going on currently in this country. So, so Doctor, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you. We'll be seeing you again at 
thank you for listening tonight. We'll be back next week, same time, same station. So between now and then, have a great week. Good night. And I sat and watched the Zanzibar sunset, sat and drank my fresh mint tea, with nothing to do until morning.